And what was left over, which was the plant, which PPG would have shut down, which was metal forming, wastewater treatment, toll manufacturing, lab chemicals, paint stripping, all these other product areas that we were really quite good at in Canada, but weren't part of PPG's portfolio, that became the basis of, of Dimechem. So in 2014, 2015, we restarted, well, we didn't, the business never stopped, but we renamed the business Dimechem with the sale to PPG. And we were very proud of that because we, we saved about 30 jobs. We just celebrated 50 years. We have some employees at our facility that have been 30, 35, 40 years working for us. You know, we're very, very proud to save those jobs in 2015, save the plant. Hello and welcome to another episode of Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm your host, Nick Persichilli, and in this episode, I chat with Steve Cox and Andrew Conway, respectively the president and vice president of Windsor, Ontario's own Dymachem. First founded in 1972 as Chemphil Canada Limited, the company was a supplier of industrial blended chemicals primarily for the automotive manufacturing industry. However, in 2014, after the passing of the company founder, Frank Butterworth, PPG became interested in purchasing their book of business and offered his family a buyout. What wasn't included in the buyout was the original plant, which PPG would have shut down. Thankfully, Steve and Andrew saw an opportunity. The facility had capabilities like metal forming, wastewater treatment, lab chemicals, paint stripping, and the like, and after the PPG deal was signed, Steve and Andrew took the existing facility and renamed it Dimechem. And from the employee's perspective, the work never stopped. Both Andrew and Steve credit much of Dimechem's success to the city of Windsor for its talent pool, for its location to customers and suppliers, and for its culture of manufacturing. And they're not the first ones to say so either. To our friends in Windsor, I say get to know Dimechem if you don't already know them. Their story is interesting and worth studying. Yes, because they're a manufacturer that found a way to stay in Ontario, but also for the implications of keeping that manufacturing capacity here. The Dimechem story is one of innovation and vision. After the buyback from PPG, as we came to call it on the episode, the company only really enjoyed about four years of uninterrupted prosperity before the world got sick in 2020. So what did this chemical company do? Well, like many other companies during the early days of the pandemic, they pivoted their operations to make hand sanitizer. And they did it in roughly 48 hours. Looks like Andrew and Steve were right to keep that plant open after all. And lucky for us they did, because today... They are the Canadian toll manufacturer of Pine Sol for Clorox. Remember how hard it was to find that during the opening days of COVID-19? Well, thankfully, Dimechem is making it here, in Ontario, today. So we're less dependent on foreign imports if the critical need arises again. Not only did they not lay anyone off during the pandemic, they actually grew their operations. And to keep up with the sudden demand for hand sanitizer, they invested $5 million in a packaging line. Check the timestamp for the discussion. It's a great story about the importance of manufacturing and what it means to the individuals working in the company, to the people in the community, and to the province as a whole. In short, I would argue the Dimechem story is the story about how and why it's important that we keep on making it in Ontario. And just like that, we are recording and it is in progress. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I am being joined today by two new friends. Steve and Andrew. And uh, Steve, since you are in my upper left-hand corner on the monitor, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself first. Hi, I'm Steve Cox, president of Dimechem. And directly beneath him is <laughs> Andrew. Andrew, would you please introduce yourself? 
Sure, I'm Andrew Conway, Vice President at Dimechem. Thanks to both of you for joining me today. So let's uh, let's get right to it. Dimechem, where do you guys fit into the advanced manufacturing ecosystem in Ontario? What are you guys up to? So where our, our predominant focus is industrial chemicals. We do a lot of it's blending of both liquids and powders. And the largest market that we actually supply directly is related to automotive parts. But we do a lot of toll manufacturing, even though the raw materials are common and the way that they're blended are somewhat common, they're into all sorts of different markets. Electrolytes and catalysts and agricultural products. And it's a wide, wide span, including pine saw, which we just started making for Clorox, which is a cleaner, right? So we, we make a lot of cleaner formulations but um, we're not in the consumer products market segment, right? That's a toll customer. Okay. So I've spent a lot of time in automotive manufacturing. So that's, that's a space where I, I'm certainly quite familiar. What can you tell me about some of the, the needs that the automotive manufacturing industry has of what kind of chemicals do they use? Yeah, the, the, the different parts of automotive manufacturing where we have very good technologies is in metal forming, so anyone who's stamping parts, especially deep, deep draws, that's where some of our technologies excel. We have non-oil fluids for deep draws, which are very environmentally progressive and easy to clean. We've just come up with, uh, in fact, Steve just came up with and patented a uh, dry film, which has uh, fantastic deep draw properties and eliminates a whole kind of environmental headache of uh, for, for very deep draws where people were forming bumpers and things like that, where they were actually putting on a zinc phosphate coating, sterated soap coating, forming the bumper and then having to strip all that off before it goes to the next step of assembly. So we've, com- we've got a technology that completely eliminates that. So that's one area of automotive parts manufacturing that we really excel at, which is forming lubricants, coolants, but especially deep draw and some environmentally progressive technologies in that area. And then the next thing that happens is people wanna ship parts around. Uh, so they need to clean them and or corrosion inhibit them. And that's another area where we have a lot of, we've got, we've got products that have proven proven for 50 years because that's, that's how long we've been making those products that they're you know, just great formulations. But we've also got you know, the latest and greatest in terms of um, the environmental characteristics or the cost efficiency characteristics of those products. So forming, then cleaning and, uh, and corrosion inhibition while things are being shipped. And then the next big area that we get into is into pretreatment. We, we, do, uh, we used to be a pretreatment company. We used to be PPG Chemfill before the whole reorganization in 2015. So we really know the paint shop market very well even though we've sold, we've, we sold our business out, out of that uh, to PPG and we no longer uh, sell pretreatment, we sell everything else that a paint shop would need. So all the wastewater treatment, um, all of the boiler treatment, all of the uh, water quality, like RO, DI water quality, um, service and treatment, oh, paint stripping, of course, you know, cleaning, whether it's cleaning a paint booth, putting robot covers onto robots, uh, stripping paint off parts that that didn't make uh, first pass quality. But those are really, really, really strong areas for us. So, Andrew, you kind of just glossed over something. You guys recently patented something. Yeah, Steve, why don't you talk about that a bit? But that, yeah, that that's, sounded that's interesting. That that you uh, that's your baby. Yeah. So th- this this is meant for when you this is meant for customers that are, or uh, stampers that are buying coils of pre lubricated metal. 
and and uh, the the typical technology is zinc stearate. So the metal actually gets uh, normally the process is the metal will get sanded and then cleaned and then zinc phosphate put on it and then reacted with uh, stearate soap to make a zinc stearate coating, which is a really thick um, just a barrier on the metal, really thick barrier. So you can you can do the deep draw without any scratching of the metal. It's very common for plating. You know, when you need an absolute immaculate metal surface that you can't hide any sins on with the paint. But that that's a it's a lot of chemicals to, just to get that barrier coating put on. And the problem is it actually, you pickle the metal, you disrupt the metal when you put that coating on and you actually have to dissolve the coating off. You have to dissolve the zinc phosphate off before you can do anything after. And the surface is not pristine. So there's, there's even further processes to try to recover the surface before you can coat it. So what, what we've developed is uh, one product, roll coat applied that goes on after the sanding, the buffing the steel. And it's a very, very thin film. It dries really quick, just ambient. So you get you can get either blanks or a coil rolling up with the film on it, and it will do the deep draw, and it will wash off with water. And there's enough film on it that you can you don't need subsequent lube on the um, uh, piercing and and uh, other operations after the deep draw. That's it. Our only our only challenge is it's got to be roll coat applied. So places that are doing stamping, but they're bringing in the the steel, they don't have roll coaters right in front of the of their uh, press. So quick question. Uh, I, I have two um, clarifications that I'd need. What, what, are, what is deep draw and what is roll coating? Uh, well, a deep draw is a, is, a, is a deeply drawn metal part. So an example would be, an example in your everyday life would be a stainless steel sink. Well, that started out as a flat piece of stainless steel and it was drawn deeply into a, into a shape. It's hard to move metal like that. And, uh, but examples in the automotive world, well, I, I mentioned the bumper earlier, that's a deep draw. Um, motor, motor housings, you know, that, that starts out as a flat plate. That's a very deep and difficult draw. Oil pans. And oil pans is yeah. another one because the gauge of the steel is quite thick. And, um, you know, there's, there's just so many different techniques that have been developed over the years to achieve these deep draws, but they're all have significant impacts. So we have two main product groups that can address that. One is a a series of non-oil lubricants, which, well, you know, well, it is a chemical that's being applied at the press, like a traditional lube, it is not oil, and it does not have a lot of the health and safety issues that go with oil or the subsequent disposal and washing issues that go with oil. Or, or so, raw, ma raw material costs or source. Raw material costs, yeah, that's another good factor. So that's one series of, of non-oil fluids that we, that we can supply to people that are doing difficult draws. And then the other is this brand new Easy Draw KH213 that Steve was just talking about, which is our, our product name for this dry film. And the second part of your question is, what is a roll coater? Most people that are stamping are just spraying lubes on at the, the press, and that's the most common application. And uh, it's very, very low cost to entry to do that. You can get a spray system to apply the lubricant. The roll coater is a more expensive piece of equipment. It's available at a steel service center or certain customers put them in to apply lubricants like this. And it's basically rolls, steel rolls with nips, and it applies a very, very thin coating, but also kind of very uniform. Squishes it on, right? The metal's going between the, the rolls, the big metal rolls, and, and the, the products being poured in between where that, the, the rolls actually touch each other it's pressing it on as it goes in between them. 
So you get a very, and, and you can actually adjust that tiny gap between the two rollers to get exactly the thin film you want. It's really, really thin nanometers of film thickness. That, okay, that puts a, quite a few things in perspective. So when you guys are going out talking to parts suppliers and automotive, you've basically got a solution that says, hey, for all of your deep draw stampings, I can remove a fair chunk of your environmental impact. Right. Yeah. Instead of bringing all of the oil into the plant and spraying it all over the parts as the, as the metal goes through the press. And then washing and it off. Washing off the press, washing off the parts. Floors. Yep. Yeah. And then waste treating the oil. You've got disposal issues. Yeah. It, we're, we're, we're imagining this world where they're bringing in pre-lubricated coils of metal and they just, they just draw and punch and be done with it. When you say a coil, you don't mean like a spring. You mean like a roll. Roll of metal, coil of okay. metal. Yeah. Pardon yeah. my lay, no, okay. layperson yeah. understanding of this. It's okay. Yeah, it's the way most of the stampers are buying it. So that's that's fine. It's just a matter of getting the steel service centers set up. So when the when the um, when they're ordering the steel, um, the gauge, the width, etc., that they're also ordering it pre-coated, right? With this dry form lubricant. So when did you patent this? Just last year, late last, last year, early this year, something like that. Yeah. And what was the original push? Like, did, w w were there environmental regulations that you were trying to satisfy? Were there customers Actually, that were yeah. looking for it, or customer that was looking for it that had a problem, which is where ninety nine percent of our products come from. So, so the bumpers are usually mild steel, and uh, but uh, GM and other other uh, OEMs are moving to galvanize other metals, and you you really. <clears throat> You can put the traditional zinc stearate film on those kinds of metals, but cleaning them off is a lot harder without damaging the metal. And you've, you've got to use a caustic based stripper to remove the zinc phosphate. And you, you can't really use a caustic based stripper on aluminum and galvanized metal. So putting on a coating to form a bumper or, or deep draw part that you really can't clean off. That was a challenge is give us something that'll make the draw that we can clean off easily on any substrate. And I, so is this just for that one client who asked for it, or are you now offering this for all, for everyone? The pandemic's made it tough, right? So calling on people and trying to introduce this and, and getting them to make a change in this last, last two years, just trying something completely new has, has been difficult, but we're trying to get the message out. But it is a big change, right? Because if you've got a plant that just got this supply of oil, it's working for them. Sometimes it's our product, right? It's working. Like, why would I mess with it? And they've got to work with, they've either got to buy a piece of capital equipment and a roll coder, which again, the last couple of years, not something too exciting <laughs> to, to somebody who's just trying to get through and, you know, trying to go week by week. That's not exciting. And then saying, oh, well, let's talk to a, where do you get your steel from? Maybe we can get them to code it for you. Same thing. It's just Getting that to become a priority for them has been a challenge since we since we got the patent. So we're, we're not talking about a lot of time, but yes, it's out there. We're, we're trying to get attention to it. And and a, a second stab at that answer is just we developed this for one customer. That customer is in late stage trials now, and uh, we very much want to take this to the world. This is an exciting technology for us. Yeah. But yeah, as Steve said, it's been a difficult time to knock on doors the last couple of years. So. See, that sounds incredibly compelling. I, I, I love what I'm hearing. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what we were colloquially referring to as the buyback, because there's a little bit of history with Dymachem. And uh, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut up and let you guys tell the story. Um, tell us about the buyback. Sure. So 
actually just last weekend we celebrated our 50th anniversary at diamond camp now in truth the company changed names in 2015 because of this buyback restructuring that you're asking us about so it was originally founded in 1972 by a man named frank butterworth in canada and he's frank was a mentor to steve and i and a great entrepreneur and he started the company focused on making manufacturing chemicals for the automotive industry Chemicals for paint shops. That's what that's what we did. And uh, along the way, his partner became Pittsburgh Paint and Glass (PPG) Industries. And so, on his passing in 2014, PPG offered his family a fair price for the other half of the company. And at the time, um, Steve and I were not owners in the business at all. We were employees, and uh, but but leadership. And so we worked with the family. We worked with PPG to find a, a, an alternate arrangement, a, a third way. A win-win-win, effectively, and so what we what we arranged was that the family got the buyout, the payment for the for the company. PPG got everything they wanted, which was the book of business and all of the reps associated with the zinc phosphate business and the Zircobond thin film business that they were buying in Canada, and what was left over, which was the plant, which PPG would have shut down. And what was left over, which was metal forming, wastewater treatment, toll manufacturing, lab chemicals, paint stripping, all these other product areas that we were really quite good at in Canada, but weren't part of PPG's portfolio. That became the basis of, of Dymachem. So in 2014, 2015, we restarted, well, we didn't, the business never stopped, but we renamed the business Dymachem with the sale to PPG of the of the zinc phosphate thin film business and we were very proud of that because we, we saved about 30 jobs you know we, like i said we just celebrated 50 years we have some employees at our facility that have been 30 35 40 years working for us you know we're very very proud to save save those jobs in 2015 save the plant and steve and i and others have worked very hard since then to build the business of dimachem and it now is larger than when we sold Chemphil in 2015. Congratulations on turning 50. <laughs> You're a little late. <laughs> no, thank you. Nick. And, uh, and congratulations for keeping those jobs here. That's uh, that is a great success story. And then in 2020, the world got sick. Shelves were empty. Critical chemicals were in short supply and a bunch of Ontario manufacturers had to step up. As I recall, I think you guys um, have an interesting story to tell on in that regard too, don't you? Uh, yeah, we we um, I still remember the day, uh, so Thursday, when things were looking very dark just before things. Uh, yeah, those dark kind of first couple of weeks, we were realizing assembly plants were shutting down. What are we going to do? And uh, I remember getting a first call through from from one of our suppliers saying, "Hey, could you guys make hand sanitizer?" And we hadn't thought about that really even at that point we traditionally wouldn't have made a product like that and i was a little bit hesitant but then then i started to get calls from other people like like andrew the business partner saying hey i'm getting a lot of calls for hand sanitizer do you think we could figure this out we moved pretty fast from that's a product we wouldn't normally make to we got to figure out how to make it how long did that shift take for us i think it was 48 hours <laughs> seriously could we make it? Do we have the formulas? How would we actually pull it off? How could we secure secure the ethanol? How would we treat our, how would we, what would we actually do with this piece of business if it took off? We wanted to focus on the current customers that we had to help them first. 
because it, it, it went from a couple of people asking to just amount of like a pile of phone calls and an explosion. Yeah, we had to put somebody in charge just of answering, do you have hand, hand sanitizer questions? So I think it was about 24 hours. We had a formula we thought we could make, two formulas we thought we could make and a way to make them. That's impressive. My, my recollection was that it was a, a Thursday that we, we discussed it in earnest and uh, it was a Tuesday following that we shipped to Toyota. Yeah. And the other, the other thing that I think was really important to us was that we, we if, you, if you think way back in the pandemic, when it first started, we didn't realize, no one had even conceived of such a thing as a shutdown. Right. You know, we were, we were at the time, that, that Thursday, Tuesday thing that I remember, we were trying to figure out how to help our suppliers, our, pardon me, our customers stay open and stay safe. And we've always made cleaners and disinfectants and we have DIN registered disinfectants. And it's not like it's a complete departure for us. We've made products that contain these ingredients before we just hadn't ever tried to. Well, that's, that's why that's why we were getting the calls, but hand yeah. sanitizer itself. Hand sanitizer itself was not something we previously made, no. But again, our focus back then was very much, well, how, how do we help our customers stay open and stay safe? We, we, we hadn't even ever heard of or conceived of this idea of a shutdown. And then, of course, there was a shutdown and, and there was a tremendous demand for what we just figured out how to make. And we continued to sell it through that period at our, at our normal approach to business, which is cost plus a fair margin. But as we got through that, the thing that was great about making those products for both our customers and also for our region, we participated in a, um, in a, in a local Windsor-Essex regional uh, group that was focused on you know, getting getting uh, needed supplies. It wasn't just hand sanitizer, but it was other disinfectant products and uh, other, other medical yeah. you know, supplies into the hands of the people that most needed it, which of course at first was hospitals, et cetera. But then after that, it was also first responders and um, people that were disadvantaged in other ways and needed help to, to get access to these supplies. So the main thing was that it kept us busy. So we didn't lay anybody off. In fact, we hired people during that period. I guess we were, we were very fortunate to, to have something positive to do during that time period. It made, it made, not just, it made our employees feel proud. And that's, that's a very good thing too. I'm a manufacturing novice, but to me, it sounds like turning over your production line in 24 to 48 hours. That sounds pretty impressive. <laughs> no, no. The, the thing for us is we make like 300 different formulas. So to us, this was two new ones. The lab had, had samples sorted out within a day. Um, we had the weekend to make sure that they still looked good. <laughs> and at the same time, figuring out which production cell, how we were going to make it, how, do we have enough raws, and uh, what, how are we going to get those follow-up raws? No, to us, it was, it was two more to the, to the list of many, many products. Except there was no orders for the other products. Yes. Yeah, the, the other 299 had fallen off. Yeah. yeah. The feds, by the way, were great. Health Canada, um, you know, reclassified hand sanitizer from a DIN to a natural product, which reduced, I mean, still highly regulated, but it made it um, just, and, and was, they also published a monogram formula. They said, basically, if you make the monogram formula, we'll fast track the approval. And they were true to their word. So there were many was, other companies that followed that was, same path. And It was really fast and well guided. Like we were yeah. on the phone that day with them. How do we do this? And they were excellent. So is the way you handled that what got the attention of Clorox? Yeah, we don't really know, actually. Um, how, how We don't know if they were aware of that at that time. But uh, 
we, we started a series of discussions with Clorox during the pandemic when during that period you said you reminded us of you know when this when the shelves were empty and uh, the world seemed uh, very strange um, and and one of the things people wanted was just didn't register disinfectant and uh, I, I got the impression and, and it, it's hard because you know customers don't always tell you what what drives their decisions behind their closed doors. But I got the impression that the Canadian part of Clorox had long wanted to have a, a shorter supply chain for various reasons. And I think the pandemic uh, allowed them to push that organizational change through, through the broader organization and to, you know, to, to charter a toll manufacturer here in Canada and to set that up. So I mean, it I, took I mean a year. <laughs> yeah it took a year of negotiation um and, it wasn't uh, just us right like it, so it wasn't yeah. i don't think it was hey these guys are doing a good job on hand sanitizer maybe they'd like pine saw it was definitely not like that it was they went to all the toll manufacturers they probably could find in canada and put out a, a bid request and uh we worked on it for primarily andrew worked on it for a year yeah. but i think the other thing was they were looking for excess capacity yeah what they found in Dymachem was uh, a team that was like, well, we, we have excess capacity to blend. Would you like 20,000 liters? We can make it tomorrow. But what we didn't have was excess capacity to bottle. Um, but we were willing to put the equipment in to do that. So we've always, we, we've always been very, very good blenders. And most of our products, because they go to industrial manufacturing operations, most of our products are leaving our plant for the last 50 years in drums, totes, and tankers. To go to our customers. So what this what this Clorox operation or what this Clorox contract really represents to us is a new way to blend what we do very very well. Um, and of course, we put in dedicated cells for the pine saw and we blend it only in those cells. And but we've also basically this investment of the packaging line where we blow the bottles and fill the fill the bottles and robotically uh, palletize them and ship them and all that. That is just a different way to, to get to market for us. So we're making a lot more disinfectant cleaner now than we ever were before. It's just leaving our plant in a different format. I would like to say to, to that Clorox was thinking ahead. Um, you know, now we've gotten to a different cycle now and uh, there, there's product on the shelves everywhere, uh, which is great for all Canadians and all consumers. But I think Clorox very much so got there first with strategies like this. You know, shortening the supply chain protects their business and protects their customers from any future disruptions. And who knows what the next one's going to be. I pray there's never another pandemic in my life or my children's lives, but there could be something else. Uh, who knows what comes next? And short supply chains matter when, uh, when things are disrupted. Obviously, working for a company like Clorox requires that you have your ducks in a row and you're organized. I would imagine you guys have certain ISO certifications. Uh, what can you tell me about those? Uh, well, it, it did. It did change after the buy sell because we used to have an automotive version of ISO 9001, which is a TS certification. So that's the only. Well, that's one of two significant changes in the last five years. So we've got ISO 9001, which is the quality management, 14001, which is environmental management, and the other recent change is 45001. So we went from the old OHAS version to an ISO standard for the uh, occupational health and stand, uh, safety management. Those are the three main ones. So it sounds like you guys are pretty well certified. Have you guys ever considered looking at moving your operations to the GTA? Expanding operations to the GTA, I think we've looked at a few times. I, I don't think we would ever want to leave Windsor. Yeah, we're always looking at growing. 
and we have looked at the GTA a few times. We've got a warehouse in the GTA we share, actually share with a customer that works quite well. It's so far, it hasn't been made economical sense to do that. Can you tell me why? The space prices in Toronto are, are quite high, but I, I just also just want to talk about Windsor for a second. Windsor yeah. is a very nice place. Right, uh, yeah, you know, right next to Detroit and the border. And yeah, the, it's, 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 it's a great place. It's a great place to have a business. Um, people, the, I mean, I can't speak for everyone in Windsor, but the people, we've got a lot of long-term employees. We've got a lot of people that are, are great, great employees, great team members and, and, and seem like they're willing to, to, to look at it as a family. Like, and, and that's the way I want to look at the, our business is it's okay. You've got your, your family at home. You got to take care of them, but it's, it's okay to have, you know, a family feel at work. That's what we, we really try hard to achieve. And uh, we, we get a lot of that. It's not a one-way thing. We get a lot of that both ways with the, the team in Windsor. And Windsor, you know, traditionally with the auto industry, it's up, it's down. It's, I know it's, it's, it's really diversified in the last uh, few decades, but it's been a great place to have a nice, steady business. People really appreciate that when they see their neighbors, you know, on they got too much work for a year and then they don't have any work for a year with with the way the traditional uh cycle has been in the auto industry so i i i just would like to say something very very positive about windsor it's a nice place yeah, to I, have I, a factory i currently do not feel highly motivated to go into the gta there's just no it's working we, we love windsor and, you know we were talking a little bit about our employees in windsor and the family feel that we have and and how how great our employees have been with us with for the long term and one of the things that steve and i have uh, and and the other ownership uh, brian and, and uh, frank's family we've done is we've created an esop which is very important to us that's an employee stock ownership plan uh so the thinking is okay we're, we're we are owned by our employees you know steve and myself and brian uh, are the three main owners that, that restarted the business in 15 by, by, by buying it back from, from PPG, if you will. Um, but what we've been trying to do ever since then, um, or actually since about 2018, once we kind of moved from the, the red into the black, that was our target, uh, we, um, we want to start sharing that, that ownership with all of the employees to share it broadly. And, and the reasons for our ESOP program are to... Um, to thank and, and retain and reward long-term employees um, and to create a culture of engagement where people act and think like owners. And that's that. those are the two main goals that we've, uh, we've, we've had with the ESOP program and we're pretty proud of that. So Andrew, you just kind of hit, you hit on something that has come up a few times in my conversations with podcast guests, and that is the issue of culture. I, I can appreciate the fact that you are trying to breed a culture of inclusion and you're a part of this and this is your company. And I think, I think that's fantastic. And it leads nicely into the next question that I have, which has to do with a little bit of workforce development. I know that other manufacturers out there, they, they have chronic problems with the talent pipeline, filling the talent pipeline, retaining employees. Have you hit your head on this? Have you come up with any solutions? Where are you on that front? <laughs> Brian and me, I, uh, it's, it's definitely been a challenging couple of years, you know, hiring and, 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 and retaining new employees through a pandemic is a challenge I've never experienced before, but then doubling the workforce at the same time. Um, 
yeah, that's it's, it's quite the challenge. Um, I would say we have been very successful predominantly because of the people that are doing the hiring and managing and, and their, their style and approach of really caring about the people that we bring on board. And there's some people are not going to work out, right? It's, you're never going to have a hundred percent retention, but I think, I think our team gives it, gives it a really, really good shot. If you want to study good job where people care about you and you can come to work every day and feel part of a team, it's there. The other interesting challenge we've kind of had is we've got, we've got a, a, a team of people that have been around forever trying to integrate with brand new people. That's, that's harder than I really understood until the last couple of years. Yes, we have had struggles where I think people thought they were ready to come back to work. And then, it, you know, within sometimes an hour, <laughs> they're saying, you know what, I don't think I'm ready. And then they're gone. And that hurts because we've made a decision to go ahead with somebody. We've filled a spot. We get a sense of relief. We're ready to train them. And then we're back to square one again for, for a position. But I, I, we work very hard to make sure that, that our, our, our company culture is ready if, if, if the new staff is ready. The other interesting challenge we've kind of had is we've got, we've got a, a, a team of people that have been around forever trying to inter, integrate with brand new people. That's, that's harder than I really understood until the last couple of years. And I, Andrew and I are always, you know, we're always looking for people to suggest different ways of doing things, right? We want to be challenged. It's also hard to be, you can only take on so much of those different ideas and challenges and implement them and make people feel like they're heard at the same time. So one of the challenges is we've got people that have been around for a long time that really, really know their job the way we've already always done it. And that's a, that's a double-edged sword. <laughs> and then you bring in brand new people who have fresh eyes and they're excited. They want to give all sorts of new ideas and they're sharing them with the people that have been there forever that, you know, this is the way we do it. Sometimes that butts heads a bit. So navigating that's been, I think that's the only kind of employee culture thing that we've, we've tried to smooth out over the last couple of years. It's been a challenge getting there by, by reinforcing that the fact that we do want new ideas, we'll try our best to look at them. People will be heard. Same time, we got to run a business all day, and we can't keep changing the cogs on stop. Right? We got to get get product out and uh, and safely, and safely, and make sure make sure we're considering the, the new ideas. Yeah. You know, Steve Steve mentioned we've doubled our workforce, and in a time when it's been very hard to hire people. So, but we we anyways we have uh, doubled our workforce, and we've hired a lot of new people, and we put in place a lot of new positions with this new packaging line. And one of the people that comes to my mind is this guy named Jose. And I just, uh, I, uh, he's working steady nights, so I don't see him all that often these days. Uh, but uh, I do see him sometimes in the mornings when I'm down there, and he's always got a smile on his face. And uh, when we were working nights together, I got to know him a little bit, and he, he was a short order cook. He worked in a restaurant for 25 years. Now he's out of a job because pandemic shuts everything down, so he comes and works with us. He's, he's now operating, uh, um, he's operating a case packing machine, and he's awesome at it. He's really, really awesome at it. He, you know, I mean, this is a complex, almost a million dollar machine made in Italy. And he speaks Spanish and English. And he's been working in a restaurant for 25 years. And he's awesome at running his machine. And he loves the environment. And I said, now, Jose, when the restaurants open up again, and this was a while ago, they're open now, I know. But, but you know, I said, you're not going to leave us. And he goes, no, no, I'm never going back to the restaurant. I love working here. And I'm like, that's what I want to hear. Because I don't know, I, I don't know how we did that, but we, you know, we treat them well, and it's a family, and 
it's a nice place to work and you know but, but I it's guess disruption, hard. right? It's, it's it's still hard work. It's still hard right? work. It's still but, hard work. But but I guess I'm. It's a story. The reason I'm telling it, I think, is because it's a story where disruption, which of course is sometimes good, sometimes bad, in this case is good for us. This disruption benefited us. It's too bad you said that you don't know how it happened because I was going to probe you a little bit on that and <laughs> say how how what's the secret sauce? How do you get more Jose's? I think I, I think we, we were we we're listening to him. I mean, he did have ideas on how to fix a case packer, and and I think uh, you know it's possible that other businesses would say, "Well, I just spent the million dollars, and we just had the supplier put it in, and they told us how to run it, and that's that. Go back to work." And that's that's not what we do. He he had valid concerns and questions and thoughts, and fill your boots. What are you and, thinking? And I think the um, other part of the answer is that we do have other Jose's that have joined us. They, they right. we've got. We've got people working in our plant now from Mexico and um, uh, and Poland and uh, other parts of South America, uh, the Middle East. But we've got a lot of new people working in our plant that they reflect the demographic of Windsor now, which is wonderful. Whereas prior to this expansion, our workforce may have more represented the demographic of Windsor 10, 15 years ago because we have we have so many long-term employees, right? So it's it's been a very positive change in other ways too. For sure. Yeah. I am thoroughly impressed with how you guys have uh, run your company for the past, you know, whether it would be two years or beyond. So it sounds like you're the, you're in the right place with the right people in the right time. So I wanted to thank you guys both for joining me on the microphones. Thank you for chatting. Thank you for sharing. And uh, I can't wait to see what you guys come up with next. Thank you very, thank much, you Nick. very much. Thanks.